Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast. Today on the pod, Vancouver's new task force report shows how the city can save money and reduce red tape. But with a $2 billion budget, is the will there to make the big unpopular decisions? Plus, Robbie Kalan joins us to discuss what the rollout looks like when it comes to new housing legislation. And we discuss immigration being tied to available housing. Plus, how real is Premier David Eby's $36 billion 10-year energy plan for the province? And as the Arctic cold front pummels North America, we look at why Teslas are having trouble in cold weather. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, let's begin the show today and talk about red tape and getting back to basics. It's a line I've used on this show many a time, uh, referencing local government uh, and its need to stick to their core responsibilities. Well, a 33-page report called the Vancouver Task Force Report uh, has been released uh, by City Hall. The task force uh, was created last year so City Hall could see where it could save money and how it can refocus uh, its operations when it comes to the programs it delivers. There were a total of 17 recommendations. Now, the core issue uh, is the fact that the report uh, showed that the city spent $150 million in operating expenses and over $230 million in capital expenditures outside of traditional municipal service areas in 2023 alone. What, what does that mean? Well, the money went to climate initiatives, social housing, child care, emergency aid, uh, health care, Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services as well. So different types of programs outside one would argue is the sort of the core focus for City Hall. Now, keep in mind, Vancouver City Hall's yearly budget sits around $2 billion a year. Uh, earlier today, Councillor Pete Fry spoke to uh, my colleague Jill Bennett. Uh, take a listen to his comments. But the reality is, is when we are faced with, uh, you know, housing unaffordability, homelessness, the overdose crisis, all these things that are, are manifesting on our streets in our city, um, and if it's if it's not being handled by other levels of government, then we have a problem that, that unfortunately, um, we, the city of Vancouver, are, are, are faced to reckon with. And consistently, we hear from the public, uh, the taxpayers, uh, that those are priorities for them. So, you know, nobody, generally folks don't talk a lot about pipes and roads and sewers and stuff, but we certainly hear a lot about homelessness, public safety, uh, people suffering on our streets. Those are, are consistent uh, requests from taxpayers that we need to do more to address that. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the task force recommendations is Kareem Alam. He's a former chief of staff to Mayor Ken Sim and ran the ABC uh, campaign as campaign manager. Kareem, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jazz. What do you take from the overall uh, sentiment of this task force report? Well, the report itself was a bit of a snooze fest. For those that watch city politics closely, there wasn't really anything new revealed in the report. Um, But in support of uh, the, the report itself, it does highlight that there has been this consistent downloading of costs from federal and provincial governments onto the city's budget. And some of the things that uh, Councillor Fry had mentioned are things that I agree with. The city's taking on more responsibility for homelessness. Um, uh, our fire departments turn into an ambulance service, which is a provincial responsibility. Things like dikes. Yes, we have dikes in Vancouver like they do in Richmond, have now been uh, downloaded on to the city's books as well. So that's putting a tremendous amount of pressure 
on the city's uh, on the city's budget every year. But the list keeps going on. Ecom nine one one. There was a special levy that was downloaded onto the city of Vancouver this year. Again, it was a seven or eight million dollar hit, which is almost responsible for a full percentage point of uh, property tax increases. But this downloading of costs has become. Uh, quite standard. Um, three years ago, the report said $150 million of download costs. Three years ago, that number was $98 million. So in three years, that number has grown by about $50 million. And that's not an insignificant number. So how do you fix this problem at City Hall? If you're saying there's downloaded costs, every municipality is dealing with it, including the suburbs, including other major cities across this country. How do you fix it then? How do you fix this structural challenge within the budget? I don't know how to fix it without senior levels of government taking the responsibility for it. Today we saw Quebec Premier Francois Legault, who's typically seen as a conservative, and Olivia Chow, yep. the mayor of Toronto, who's an NDPer, both come out and say that the refugees that Canada's bringing in, so the federal government is bringing Syrian and Ukrainian refugees, and they're ending up in homeless shelters in Toronto and in Montreal, but they're also ending up here as well too. And again, the city of Vancouver is responsible for uh, um, the cost of administering support and housing for, for, for these refugees without any transfers from the federal government. As a mayor, as a council, um, you're either going to pay for it or you're not. Um, and so the last level of government, that last safety net ends up being the city. Mm-hmm. We're a pretty compassionate bunch here in Vancouver and we care about our neighbours and we care about doing the right thing. But it really is going to be up to the more senior levels of government to say, okay, you know what, enough's enough, we're going to take some of this stuff back. What is wrong with having a heart, but at the end of it saying, wait a minute here, we can't continue this because if you're doing this, it's the sentiment is there, but there's a huge infrastructure challenge that the city has, right? That's ongoing. What is wrong with saying no, and, and I may sound cold here, to daycare? That's a provincial responsibility, right? And potentially federally and some of these other issues that you've talked about. What is wrong with saying no to some of this? Yes, uh, you're going to hear complaints in your city, but it's going to save a lot of money. We've got a $2 billion budget. We should be able to do all of the core – I mean the focus – what I'm trying to say is the focus should be on the core the core things that we need done for a city. Garbage pickup, potholes, parks, some of the things that you've talked about. The other issues, yes, in a perfect society we should be handling that. But why is Vancouver burdening itself with all of it? It's a really good question, Jazz. But fundamentally we need to understand that a lot of these things are interconnected with each other. So if we don't spend enough money on shelters, the problems disperse and we see an uptick in crime. And then that manifests itself in increased policing costs. Um, When uh, we have daycare issues uh, in the city of Vancouver, then it's hard for the city of Vancouver to attract and retain employees to come to the city. So we end up having to pay people more to come work at the city of Vancouver. So there never really is a straight trade-off where we stop doing something, we immediately see savings. Mm -hmm. Um, The linkages tend to be a lot more complex than that. But the real issue at the heart of this is to balance their budget provincially, to balance their budgets federally, um, successive governments. And this isn't to blame the most recent uh, two federal and provincial governments. But going back for 15, 20 years, they've been doing that by downshifting these costs onto municipalities. And you saw today the Premier of Quebec and the Mayor of Toronto say enough's enough, um, and they're trying to build up the political pressure to get these uh, provincial uh, and federal leaders to take on more of the responsibilities, and that needs to happen. The next election, the leader that stands up and says, I'm going to stop 
um, downloading costs on municipalities. That's the leader we should support. What are the is this about community centers or are there other things coming down the pike as though that we're not talking about? That five hundred million dollars that was referenced in the report is something we've known about for quite some time uh, in the city of Vancouver. Now, to be clear, that five hundred million dollars is accumulated annually. So after ten years, it's five billion dollars, and that's a shortfall in deferred uh, uh, renovations. I guess is the word. Um, for the sewer system. So over the course of 10 years, that's a $5 billion shortfall in upgrading our sewer system, which is at this point 100 years old and is in desperate need of repair. One of the things that's impacting our ability to add new housing stock here in the city of Vancouver is how old our sewer system is and that there's not enough sewer capacity for newer, higher density buildings. Um, So this $500 million shortfall is an impediment to housing, but it's also a significant future burden on taxpayers in the city of Vancouver. So where would this, this would be Iona then? No, this is funding just for the existing sewer and water infrastructure that you have underneath your house. The Iona sewage plant um, is in desperate need of being upgraded. Uh, Currently, it's slated at an $11 billion price tag. That would make it on the scale of Site C in terms of dollar cost. Now, if the federal government and the provincial government fund two-thirds of it, that will increase the property taxes in the city of Vancouver by about $700 per home. If the feds and the province don't fund it, it'll be up to $2,100 a home in the city of Vancouver. So the cost of all this infrastructure that's aging, that needs to be replaced, is going to have a very, very heavy burden. So these downloaded costs are making us not spend money on the things, on these core services that you're talking about. And what's been happening is we've been deferring and deferring and deferring and deferring. We've now kind of hit the critical end of life on a lot of this critical infrastructure and we don't have the money to pay for it. Hmm. Now you mentioned uh, a little, we, we were actually, there was a story earlier uh, this week in regards to the overtime that police are paying because of the, so many protests that we have in Vancouver. But one of the other issues you and I have touched on in the past is, I mean, if you're going to help Vancouver out, even things like homeless shelters, uh, you need to spread that out over the lower mainland. And part of the problem is Vancouver seems to be absorbing a lot of these very specific costs that really other communities, at the end of the day, just don't spend the money on. That's exactly right, Jazz. Uh, there's the downloading of costs from senior levels of government, but there's also a side shifting of costs from other municipalities. Vancouver is a city of about 650,000 people. Its daytown population is well over a million. So we're having to pay for policing for a million people. We're having to pay for homeless shelters. Uh, we have 9,000 shelter spaces in Vancouver. Burnaby's only taken 200 on. So again, Vancouver's absorbing more than its fair share of, uh, of the cost. But also, you know, uh, we have all the big events here in Vancouver. We're the ones that get all the riots and the protests. We get the Jerry Seinfelds and the Chris Rocks, and there's policing costs associated with hosting those events. So those are all things that um, the Vancouver taxpayer is paying for that other uh, municipal taxpayers aren't paying for. Hmm. This report, when you look at it, uh, what's the chance this city will do anything about it in the present council? And what I mean by that, it still takes will, right? I mean, when you look, think of Paul Martin in the 90s with Jean Chrétien, they made a decision, you're going to eliminate the deficit. There are repercussions from that, don't get me wrong. Yes, lots of pressure from the reform and conservative parties as well. But they got to the point where um, the budget was balanced at one point. Uh, and now it's the other way again. But it was balanced. Is the will there to actually tackle this in a meaningful way? It's all well and good to have a report. But you know very well, you've worked in government. Yeah. Reports come, they look at it, lots of noise, and then they get shelved. Is the will there with this council to actually address some of this stuff? You know, I can't speak for the mayor and council. It would take a tremendous amount of courage to start rolling back on some of these non-core service uh, uh, items, knowing full well what the consequences will be. Um, rather than 
pushing the city council on these tough decisions. I would be looking at the province and the feds uh, to take on more of their fair share, which has been a common refrain from the mayor of Calgary, Edmonton, Montreal, and Toronto as well, too. Uh, this has got to stop. Um, and ultimately, no one's going to say, I'm going to be dispassionate and discompassionate and stop finding homeless shelters. Um, uh, that's just not the right thing to do in a society. Um, but it is the responsibility of, the, of these senior levels of government, particularly in the case of refugees and veterans, um, uh, for them to step up. Uh, and do you think there's any will to do that, though? Especially when we had an election coming provincially, we had an election coming federally in 2025. Is the will there? The will can be there, but the public needs to ask for it. And uh, we need to raise the profile of this issue. It's not typically part of a provincial or federal party's election platform to say we're going to stop downloading costs. Um, typically, the will evolves sometimes out of the media by asking questions and having interviews like this. Um, but the feet of the federal and provincial politicians needs to be held to the fire uh, in, in a more in a more specific way. If we continue this route and where we haven't done much except sort of flail about the edges a little bit, where does the city end up and its taxpayers end up five years from now in your mind? It's already really bad shape. I remember when I was the chief of staff last winter, everyone was complaining that garbage wasn't getting picked up. But the issue that never actually got a lot of coverage was the fact that water pipes were bursting all over the city, flooding basements, causing millions of dollars of damage. And that's happening because the sewer system is just old. So we're already seeing lots of evidence of uh, of our infrastructure failing us now. And it's also failing us in other ways that aren't as obvious in terms of our ability to add density and, and, and build up some of our older neighborhoods. Hmm. My guest uh, was Kareem Alam. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, when you look outside downtown Vancouver, you see some snowflakes, you see people bundled up. The last thing you're thinking about are wildfires. But guess what? We have wildfires burning in British Columbia at this on this day at this hour as well uh joining me now to talk a little bit about the record number of wildfires still burning in bc during the winter is forest tower he's a bc wildfire service information officer forest thank you for joining us yeah thanks for having me um why is this happening in winter uh two things so uh we had a really active fire season as it's uh, no surprise to anyone talking about um at this point last summer so just the scale of fire that we had across the province, and particularly when we're thinking about the north and northeast part of BC. So a lot of these fires that are still listed as active are in the Prince George Fire Centre, uh, and the majority of those are kind of in the Peace area or up in the far northeast corner of BC. And uh, there was quite extensive and still remains quite extensive drought in that area. So fires had the chance to burn really hot and get deep into the ground. So when we're talking about some active fires now, um, it's mainly just that there are some fires that have still exhibited um, some smoldering or some hot spots. We have a hundred of them right now on the map, um, but really it's a matter of uh, process at this point. We need to either have enough winter conditions to safely call them out remotely mm-hmm. or send a person to manually check on every fire. And with the amount of fire we have and in the remote locations they are, um, we just don't really have uh, enough staff that we have around over the winter months when those fires are really proving um, no threat. They're in very remote areas. So at this point, it's really just waiting for winter conditions, which at this point have, have come um, most likely in enough snow and precipitation and cold temperatures that 
we'll start, you know, calling those fires out um, remotely from fire centres as we get further into January um, and going into February, most likely. Now, the numbers of those fires, is about 106 or so in that area? In that, that's what the number? Yeah, there's 100 across the province right now, and like 95% of them is sure in the Prince George Fire Centre. Yeah. That area. What would we have seen five years ago, even, in regards to winter fire, winter wildfires? Mm-hmm. Typically, um, I mean, obviously, it's sort of common sense, but it depends on how many fires and, and fire load and how busy we are in the summer previous. Um, some years in the last 10, we've had none going into January um, after we've had a slower fire season. You know, we've seen um, you know, it's not uncommon to have 10 to 15 fires that are still sort of, again, active and either haven't been looked at by a person. So they might be out in, in reality, but we just haven't. Um, had a person go look at them, and we don't have enough winter conditions to safely call them out without having someone look at it. Um, and and we've had maybe one or two years where that number is around 40. So 100 is much, much more than normal. Um, but again, just just two things where there's so many fires that were burning all at once in the Prince George Fire Centre, particularly this last summer. Mm-hmm. And to have a human get to them, um, you know, by... Uh, October, November, when typically we'd be sort of cleaning up the last remnants of those fires, just logistically wasn't possible. And and again, these are fires that are in really remote locations that are obviously not actively burning at this point in winter, but, you know, might have the chance to uh, to be smoldering and a very small handful might have the ability to kind of stay kicking around under the ground um, throughout most of winter and come back in spring. But we're talking about, you know, much, much smaller numbers than, than all 100 fires. So, I would, you know, not be surprised. Typically, what happens when we when we have a lot of fires um, and not a lot of logistical capacity to go look at everyone, we'll wait until there's enough weather conditions uh, and then just kind of call them all out. And then once we get back to um, checking things out in the spring, if we do identify any areas or fires that had that ability, mm-hmm. we'll we'll you know reissue them a fire number and obviously go deal with them. Um, but likely, we'll see a, a a large reduction in the amount of fires burning um, probably in the next couple of weeks now that we have some pretty significant snow and, and cold weather across most of the province. So, I mean, you had mentioned this a little bit there in your answer, but so the, these fires are still technically, they, they're, to my understanding, referred to as zombie fires. A small minority of them can uh, flare up again in the, in the spring if the conditions mm-hmm. are right. Yeah, and, and again, so we've seen this... Um, you know, in the in the Peace region of BC, so we're talking about kind of Dawson Creek, Fort St. James, um, you know, northeast of of Prince George, uh, where just given the fuel type, so where these fires are burning in, um, there's a lot of fuel that's available when we're you know you're thinking of the ground that you're walking on um, in the forest. So from from your feet down into the earth, in that part of BC, um, the, the fuels that can actually burn go quite um, quite far down, and so. Again, because it was so dry, we had really intense fires in that area. It can burn, you know, really deep into root systems. Um, it can burn, burn quite deep uh, into peat-type uh, fuel. So it, it's not that they're, you know, flaming or active necessarily, but there is just heat that is kept underground, um, and it, even when it snows and, and it's cold. And so from, um, you know, t- summer 2022 into spring 2023, we, we saw that in the piece where there was a couple of fires that did, you know, start smoking again in the spring and it was in the same area that was burning um, the previous summer, it, it is likely that there might be, you know, small areas of some of these fires that exhibit the same behavior. Again, 
if we see a big significant change in weather. So a lot of precipitation in the form of snow or um, rain in the spring, Mm -hmm. that might change. But given the track that we're on, we're not seeing that at this point. Um, And and it's supposed to be a a potentially drier than normal um, in that area continuing for the next couple of months here. Um, Wouldn't be surprised if that does happen again this year. Uh, Forrest, as always, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me. When you think of the past legislative session in the fall in B.C., one issue comes to mind, that, of course, is housing. Four major pieces of legislation became law, leading to the most transformative housing reforms in a generation. The laws will likely reshape residential neighbourhoods by allowing up to six units on a single-family lot, increase density near transit hubs, overhaul the way municipalities collect fees from developers, and set new rules for dealing with homeless encampments. Also, the crackdown on short-term rentals ban uh, most short-term rentals that aren't in the operator's principal residence. All the changes I have mentioned will take time to implement, of course. In fact, today, the province began providing municipal governments with funding to help them meet the requirements of the various pieces of new housing legislation. A total of $51 million will be dispersed across 188 uh, municipal governments in BC to help governments meet the requirements of the small-scale multi-unit housing legislation and transit-oriented development legislation uh, that was introduced. Um, In the case of the city of Vancouver, they'll be receiving about $3.2 million, followed by Surrey with uh, just over $3 million, Burnaby with $1.3 million, Richmond with $1.1 million, and Abbotsford will receive over $910,000. Joining me now to discuss how housing legislation will be implemented in 2024 is Housing Minister Ravi Kilo, Minister, thank you for joining us. Yeah, Jazz, thanks for having me in, in, in person today, which yes, I appreciate. Yes, exactly. It's good to chat in person. Um, when you were putting together the legislation uh, with staff, uh, talking to various experts, uh, talking to advisors, walk our audience through your thinking. Uh, how complicated was it, difficult and challenging was it behind the scenes to flesh out legislation mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, whatever you came up with was going to be complicated. But I'd love to know what your mindset was and the challenges you had behind the scenes to get that legislation introduced. Well, well, first off, we started with the fact that the system as we have it now when it comes to housing, it's just not working for many people. I mean, 10 years mm-hmm. for housing to get approved. And if at that rate, I mean, our kids are just not going to have the housing they need. So what we did was we started with the basic facts, which is we need to do something different. We can't expect to get different results if we keep doing the same thing over and over again. So we looked at, um, we, we had a BC housing uh, task force, uh, which uh, provided us some recommendations in BC. We um, looked at other jurisdictions, in particular around the country, to say, what else are they recommending? So Ontario had a housing task force. So we took our task force report, their task force report, and then we did a jurisdictional scan around the world. In fact, uh, mostly around North America, but other jurisdictions said, what are other places doing? that we can learn from and and improve. And so that was the basis of what we knew we needed to do. But you nailed it. It is not easy to make the changes that we need to make in a simple way. Was there pushback behind the scenes? Like you must have been frustrated some days because you've got all this information coming, but how do you sort of you know, whittle it down to the key components. You probably had people of your own party, mm-hmm. uh, advisors, uh, public servants pushing back, you pushing back. I mean, the cut and thrust has got to be difficult when you're trying to put that type of legislation together. Well, w- when you're the minister of anything, what ends up happening is there's always pushback. There's always people have with different opinions. The, the luxury that I had in this role was I had a premier come in and say, this is the, my number one priority. 
I need you to figure out how to fix it, and you've got the support to do that. And so that made my job a lot easier. Of course, it's important to hear people um, be critical of it when you're at those tables because that actually improves the entire system and I believe helped improve the outcome that we have. But, you know, the engagement with local government started in 2018. That's how long we've been looking at the problem. That's how long we've been asking for suggestions. Much of the work we've done, in fact, was founded on those reports that we started in 2018. And so folks, kind of, they knew it was coming. They knew we need to do this. Uh, and now is the hard work. Now is the implementation of that. And the money that you've, announced, that you've shared publicly is, is important because now they can um, hire people if they need to, bring in consultants. But in the end, it's about changing their rules, changing the zoning to ensure that we get this type of housing built. So can you walk me through some of the, the, the what the next six months looks like in regards to you, the legislation's been uh, introduced, it's law, now it's about the regulations. What happens over the next six months or so? Well, local governments have to do a couple things. They have to now update their zoning rules to allow for small-scale multi-units. So on smaller lots, three units. On larger lots, four units. So they need to put that into their uh, bylaws. So that's important. That has to happen by June. We've we put guidelines out in December to say, here's what it should look like. If the lot has this, it should be this. If this lot looks like this, it should have that. So there's good guidance there, and now they have to implement. When it comes to transit-oriented development, they have to now uh, identify all their transit-oriented areas by law by June. They have to uh, update their transit-oriented development rules by, by June. And when it comes to short-term rentals, that obviously that's kicking in in May. So there's a lot of kind of I guess local government changes that need to happen, all of that has to happen by June, and, and that's what the local governments are busy doing right now. Um, what do you say to those who say, look, you're big-footing municipal governments who are still accountable to their citizens. It's the most accessible form of government. People can show up at a city hall meeting and, and talk about what's, what's bugging them. Uh, and you're big-footing that very municipal government. There was a Metro Vancouver report uh, and Richmond uh, City report as well. It basically talked about the one-size-fits-all. Is there things that you're willing to change within the regulations that you think may address some of those issues? Well, the changes we've made... Uh, are around things that are impacting every community. So when people say one size fits all, it's because those issues are in every community. They're not just in one community or another. Every community is having those issues, and that's why the changes were uh, province-wide. You know, when I got in this role, and I remember speaking to Victoria when they made their missing middle policy, the number one criticism that they heard was, why are we doing this and the communities around us are not? Right, And so if we continue to have this conversation about why are we doing this, it's everyone's responsibility. Like if we want to address this challenge to ensure the next generation has the ability to have housing, if we can have multi-generational families living together, mm-hmm. it's everyone's responsibility. So, so that's why it was done in the way it was. You're a millennial, right? I am. I am slightly older. I'm a Gen Xer. How much of this do you think in regards to the conversations you have? You make many speeches. You go to the boards of trades in many parts of the communities. You're getting pushback. How much of this do you think is actually generational, a generational divide between – and I'm broadly generalizing for audience. I'm not blaming boomers here, but baby boomers – who have a certain perspective, maybe some of us Gen Xers as well, that got into the housing market and fortunate enough to at a certain age. But how much of this do you think that we're hearing now is just a generational battle going on? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a mixed response. You're right in your assessment that younger folks overwhelmingly understand what we're trying to do here. Mm. Because right now they're seeing every generation before them having the opportunities of owning a home, being able to raise a family in the neighborhood that perhaps that they grew up in. And all of a sudden they're saying that is not something that's 
possible for me. It's just they don't see that in their reach. They know something's wrong and they want to see something different. But it's not only them. You know, when I when we first introduced these policies, I remember knocking on a door in my community and a gentleman said to me, hey, I understand what you're doing. My kids, they're thinking about going to another province. I don't want my grandkids away from me. Uh, so I get it. But I don't want my community to change. And my message to him was, whether you want your community to change or not, it is changing. It's been changing for years. Maybe the structures aren't changing, but who can live in your community? It's been changing for 40 years because it's becoming more and more exclusive only for wealthy folks. And when you have a community that doesn't have young kids anymore, mm-hmm. that is a sign that there's something wrong. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're, we want vibrant, healthy communities. We want all the amenities in the communities. That's that's all of our shared goal. But we want to make sure there's housing that's attainable for families. And that's what this is all about. Uh, now, Minister, uh, one of the things when you introduced the legislation, we, we heard from a lot of mayors. One of them, I think, that's been I think, very articulate, um, I think quite fair in regards to uh, his uh, concerns uh, was Eric Woodward, uh, mayor of Lang- Langley Township. And he was on just, I think, a week and a half ago when the Metro Vancouver Board uh, introduced or uh, provided their report in regards to their concerns over housing legislation. It was the usual uh, comments about one size fits all, um, that type of thing, and concerns around it. Uh, he was very critical off the at the beginning of the conversation, uh, and now he says it's sort of the, the horse is out of the barn. Let's accept it. Let's move forward. Let's work with the government and get there. Um, I still think that. <laughs> Mr. Woodward certainly needs a bit more convincing, mm-hmm. uh, but he's willing to, uh, to to sort of meet you halfway. Other mayors, I think the mayor of Surrey is another one who probably has expressed some concern as well. Um, what are you going to be doing in regards to working with some of these mayors that actually still have a lot of concerns? And these are the Metro Vancouver mayors. I'm sure there's going to be a different mindset in the interior, Vancouver Island, that type of thing. How will you somehow deal with some of these mayors that still aren't convinced? Well, work with them. Uh, I've got a great deal of respect uh, for Mayor Woodward. Um, and, you know, whenever these kind of things come up, I always say, what do we have in common? Uh, and, and I know with Mayor Woodward, we want affordable housing. We want more schools. We want to make sure that we have the important infrastructure in place. And we want to make sure we have housing built because it's the number one issue in his community as well. People need housing. And so those things, I think, unite us. And uh, and certainly I'm confident that we're going to be able to work through those details that we want need to work through because in the end we have the shared goal. But again... It's important to remind everybody we're doing this because we have a problem. We have young people who are thinking about leaving this province. We have, quite frankly, uh, seniors who are like, hey, my kids are leaving and what am I going to do? Do I have to leave with them as well? I want to be close to my grandkids. So we're trying to address a a major, major issue in our society and we're going to have to all work together. And I've committed, I've been meeting with mayors, I've been meeting with councils from across the province. I'm going to continue to do that work because in the end, I think we all have the shame goal. I know Mayor Woodward and I have the same goal, but I know others have the same goal. And we're going to get there, but we need to work together to do it. How confident are you? I think the number uh, over the next decade in regards to how many housing units will be built will be at 130,000, um, uh, which I think is similar to what New Zealand was saying um, in, in, in regards to this legislation. So how confident are you that you can hit 130,000 new, new units over the next decade? Yeah, and, and that's a modest modest number from the economic analysis that we got done for us. I said five years, here's your target. In 10, in, in ten years, you can do a lot more. So uh, I, I'm fairly confident, but it's going to require us to make those changes. And, you know, a simple thing. Right now, we have a system where communities get engaged, they make a plan, 
Everyone says, okay, this is where we want housing. This is what it should look like. And then when somebody comes and wants to build a house that fits within that plan, we say, you have to go through that entire process again. Like, we got to do things differently. Let's engage the community. Let's make a plan. Let's get everybody to buy in where we want the housing. But when we've got that done, let's get going. Let's start building the housing we need. So one of the other issues that we talk about a lot on this show is um, international students mm-hmm. and immigration generally. I'm an immigrant to this country, son of immigrants, mm-hmm. as you are. Uh, but this country is open to immigration. But in the last year, two years, the conversation we've been hearing more and more is something is fundamentally wrong. And I want to focus just on international students specifically. Uh, immigration Minister uh, Miller, a federal minister, uh, has now acknowledged what I think most people have been talking about the last couple of years. There's something fundamentally wrong. Half of 485,000 immigrants coming this year, half a million coming to Canada next year. That generally isn't the concern. The concern is the million international students, temporary foreign workers that are coming. The system is out of control. Uh, he says now that Mr. Miller says that he wants to, to link housing and immigration so it's closer and, and intertwined, particularly in Ontario, Nova Scotia, and British Columbia. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, when I became the Minister of Housing probably a weekend, I think I talked to you about this topic, yeah. uh, and I suggested at that time that the federal government consider tying affordable housing funding to uh, to immigration. Uh, and, you know, it's great to hear the conversation coming from the federal minister now. Um, again, we're pro-immigration. Uh, we believe... We need immigration. It is vitally important. And the actual immigration numbers are actually not a problem. They're predictable. We know how much they're going to be, so it's not an issue. You nailed it. Uh, The temporary residence issue, it is a challenge. What my hope is from the federal government's acknowledgement that we have to do something differently is not that they just come out of the blue and say, you know what, now we're going to do something different and here's a, a cap that they've suggested. Because... You know, I think you and I know the folks that come here, these international students, they haven't done nothing wrong, right? They're following the rules of the land. They've come here for an education, maybe a better life for themselves. Some of these kids, their families have sold everything they have to Mm -hmm. send them here. Mm -hmm. And to suggest that all of a sudden we're going to put a cap and all of a sudden all these kids have to go and their families, everything, we have to be humane about this. And so we need a solution, but the solution is getting to the table and mapping it out with our partners us, the federal government, so that it's done in a way that it doesn't impact people. We don't want to solve one problem and create other problems. There's a way to do this, but I'm glad we're having this conversation because, you know, this is only one part of it. People think that all of a sudden, if we just no, don't have temporary residents anymore, that housing issue will be solved. It, or they're wrong. We need to address this issue. But fundamentally, what's most important is we need to build housing and we need to do it differently. And that's what this work is about. Minister, uh, lots more we could talk about. We've run out of time. I look forward to having you on the show uh, in the near future again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Josh, and stay safe. Another person, very ND, that very that very NDP government, they made a very big announcement this week. Uh, Premier David Eby has announced a push to expand the province's electricity uh, system. Uh, and Premier Eby made the announcement at the BC Natural Resources Forum in Prince George. He's announced a 10-year capital plan, which includes spending $36 billion between 2024 and 2025. The government says the figure represents an increase of 50% over BC Hydro's last 10-year capital plan and includes nearly $10 billion for projects involving electrification and emissions reduction. Take a listen to Premier Eby uh, from Prince George the other day. Another uh, really significant opportunity that exists in our province um, is the advantage that we have as a result of our clean electricity. 
this is a world that is very hungry for clean power, especially at affordable rates. And, uh, and it's a time when access to reliable power is not guaranteed, um, and especially with the extreme weather that we've been seeing. That was Premier Eby speaking uh, in Prince George. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the $36 billion energy plan is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, welcome. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. How real is this? It's real. It's just the question is, what is it spending on? So I spoke to a number of analysts yesterday about this decision and Largely, this is capital money that is going towards improving the existing infrastructure around transmission lines and the way the dams work. And yes, uh, there are opportunities here to help produce more power, but the province is going to need a lot more power to get to the current goals in place. You heard from the Premier, and you mentioned this as well, that there is significant drought going on right now in British Columbia, that that is leading to problems with our river flows, which is reducing the amount of energy produced through our dams. All of that factored in with the fact that we're seeing, and this is a big part of the conversation you had with Minister Callon, this record-breaking level of immigration, that's putting more pressure on our grid as our population grows, more people need power. So it is real. It is a significant investment. Uh, It is a big shift for the NDP. It was Very interesting to me, the Prince George Citizen, the paper of record in that community, had an editorial published today, Jazz, and the headline reads, David Eby is eating Kevin Falcon's lunch. And to see a newspaper from that community in northern British Columbia praise the current government around the way they are investing in electricity and energy production and jobs is something I'm not sure we would have ever seen, Jazz, and it is a marked change in terms of the focus from this NDP government. Yeah, that is true. I, I, did, I saw that editorial as well after you had mentioned it to me. I was a bit taken aback. That's uh, not where I grew up, but very close to where I grew up. And uh, there's a different mindset there to a certain degree. And and um, I was very surprised by that editorial. Not something you'd find in the usually <laughs> find in the Prince George uh, Citizen. Now, uh, we had a, a segment uh, on energy and BC's energy needs a few days ago on on this show. And one of the things that we talked about is when power. Um, But do you worry that uh, the government and hydro specifically is headed in the direction of green, which I think we all want to see, but we still are going to have to rely on traditional energy as well, that the the movement, the move towards green cannot be fast enough? Yeah, my colleague Aaron MacArthur is working on a bigger story on this for next week, because obviously as we transition towards green, there still needs to be a reliability on natural gas and other Uh, traditional uh, carbon-emitting energy sources. And the commitment from this government, and you heard it time and time again from the Premier in his speech, is they are willing to invest in products that uh, ensure that First Nations uh, communities are on board, but also ensure that they are uh, targeting uh, the province's greenhouse gas emission goals. And that is a crucial piece of the way that this province is uh, to generate electricity. But weaning one off non-renewables uh, is going to be challenging, and I'm not sure we've seen the full blueprint of that yet. One of the other parts of this announcement that's gone a little bit unspoken is around a commitment to improve the permitting process. 
we know that there has been a lot of criticism from industry around the way in which BC has historically dealt with permits uh, for these types of electricity and energy projects. And there's a commitment from the premier, it under the caveat that it hits those goals of reducing climate emissions and working with First Nations, that there will be a more expedient way to go through permitting. And there are lots of companies lined up to work with the province to create wind or solar. Those seem to be the main two that are, are talked about to help get to those electricity goals we have in BC. Well, uh, Research Co., a polling firm, uh, polled British Columbians about what their next uh, purchase may be when it comes to a vehicle. And most drivers in Metro Vancouver, about 58% continue to believe that their next car will be electric. Now, many people are skeptical skeptical of the government uh, hitting their 2035 target of uh, eliminating all fossil fuel, fossil fuel vehicles. Uh, they think 2035 may be a bit too fast. But what's interesting here is that most drivers in Metro Vancouver, 58%, as I said, continue to believe their next car will be electric. You focus on northern Vancouver Island, where things, of course, temperatures get a little um, chillier and can be colder. Only 42% believe their next vehicle vehicle will be an EV. Uh, here's uh, Mario Conseco from Research Co. speaking to colleague Jill Bennett earlier today. Take a listen. And we do see these differences, particularly when it comes to uh, whether your next purchase is going to be electric. If you live in Metro Vancouver, 58% of drivers say, yes, I can see myself driving an, an, an electric vehicle uh, when, when I get my next one. Fraser Valley at 49%. But you look at all the regions of the province and the numbers drop dramatically. Southern BC at 48%, Vancouver Island at 45%. In Northern BC at 42%. Now, bear in mind that this is something that is happening by 2035. So there's not a lot of time left. And a lot of these concerns are definitely related to the size of the areas where you drive. If you're in Metro Vancouver, you're going to be surrounded by those charging stations and are not going to worry that much. But what we see right now is a, a heightened level of concern about the infrastructure that is going to be required, particularly in the north, to make sure that this actually makes sense. Not just infrastructure, but it's also uh, cold temperatures and the impact on a uh, electric vehicle, the battery itself. Uh, we've been hearing about that over the last few days as this Arctic uh, front has been just pummeling North America. Uh, temperatures in the city of Chicago hit about uh, oh, minus 23 degrees Celsius. There, a lot of Tesla users we're running into dead batteries or having difficulty charging up their Teslas. Here's Fox 32's report on the story regarding Teslas not charging up. Nothing, no juice, it's still on 0%. And this is like three hours this morning being out here after being out here eight hours yesterday. Tyree Beard was among the dozens of Tesla owners trying desperately to power up their cars at this Tesla supercharging station in Oak Brook. A scene mirrored with long lines and abandoned cars at scores of other charging stations around the Chicago area. Man, this is crazy. It's, it's, it's a disaster. Seriously. Just, oh, we got a bunch of dead robots out here. Dead robots. <laughs> this is your car? Yeah. But it was no laughing matter to people like Kevin Sumrak, who landed at O'Hare last night to find his Tesla dead, forcing him to hire a flatbed tow truck to try to find a working charging station. So I can get back to Indiana. But you can't find one that's charging or working? Either working or doesn't have cars sitting, um, still plugged in. You've been here since when? 5 p.m. yesterday. So 20 hours or so? Yeah, about... Tesla did not respond to any of our emails or calls, but an automobile expert we talked to says there are some things that EV owners can do when it gets this brutally cold. 
moving anyway. It's moving. Like any new technology, Dane, there's a learning curve. Mark Bielek of the Chicago Auto Trade Association says all EVs can have problems dealing with extreme cold and says it's important for drivers to hit their preconditioning button before they charge their battery. It's not plug and go. Um, you have to precondition the battery, meaning that you have to get the battery up to the optimal temperature to accept the fast charge. We have had extraordinary cold, but is this acceptable? No, not at all. I mean, pay a premium price for these Teslas. In Oak Brook, Dane Placco, Fox 32 Chicago. That is a report from Fox 32 uh, News in Chicago. Joining me now is Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, reduced driving range uh, for Teslas and EVs and hours of waiting at charging stations. In the case of uh, Chicago, as I said, temperatures dipped down to minus 23 degrees Celsius. But this problem, which we just heard from that news story, uh, stretched all the way to, uh, from Chicago to northern Texas. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jess. Good to hear you. Hi. Um, does this surprise you? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, batteries are, are devices that store energy and, and distribute it based on chemical reactions. And when you make something really cold, you change the chemistry simply by slowing it down. Think of all, you remember your high school chemistry class? I'm sure you do, Jazz, where, you know, the little atoms and the molecules are all bouncing around in that video you fell asleep in. And, um, you know, that's what's happening here. You're changing the chemical reaction of, uh, of how batteries work. And it doesn't matter whether it's a lithium-ion battery or a nickel metal hydrate battery, which was your normal car battery. Um, it, they're just going to slow down. So, one of the things in your report there that's really important, if you have an EV and you have a pre-charging function in it, make sure you pre-charge it before you try and run run with it. So that, that preconditioning they were talking about, I was yeah. reading somewhere, you, yeah. you sometimes need half an hour to warm the battery so it's ready to actually charge. Yes. Now, if, if you're like most of the people that own EVs in, in, in Canada and the United States and in Europe, um, you probably have a garage or at least you have a carport, so you'll have some advantage uh, related to that. If you have a warm garage, it'll take you less time to precondition the battery. So in this kind of weather, if you have a garage, put your, put your car in there and, uh, let it, uh, and shorten the preconditioning period. I see. So, now, so there's literally a button on a Tesla where, uh, on the screen where you can hit precondition then? Yes, yeah. And, and lot, lots of other vehicles have it. But listen, in this kind of weather we have now, you're, you're typically going to lose 20 to 40 percent of the normal, ideal driving range. Um, so if your range is, um, you know, 500 kilometers, you're going to lose oh, somewhere between two to three, 250, 200 to 250 kilometers uh, of your range. Um, so, you know, you got to plan for that. You have to plan for your charging. You'll need to change your, your charging ideas that you might've been living with in better weather. And, um, you, you know, th th this is just the type of thing you have to deal with. And keep in mind too, we're all human. And in this kind of weather, we turn on our heaters, our seat heaters, our steering wheel heaters, the defroster, the rear defroster, and all these things chew up energy. And so, again, if you want to extend your range a little bit, 
Don't use your heater so aggressively. Don't, you know, uh, turn off those seat heaters once you're nice and cozy in your car. And do they see these problems in countries like Norway where there's even greater pickup uh, in regards to the purchase and use of EVs? That's a cold country. Yeah, yeah, they do. This is a universal problem. It, you know, it's chemistry, you know, and chemistry and, and, of course, the way we use our vehicles. I mean, you know, any, any battery is a chemical device, and it, it relies on chemical reactions to provide the energy uh, that's going into it. But there is a plus to this, Jess. Do you want to know what the plus is? What is the plus? <laughs> well, <laughs> most EVs have their batteries in the floor of the vehicle, which lowers your center of gravity and increases your traction. So in weather like we're having here in the lower mainland today, mm-hmm. most people will have much better cold weather traction. It means they're going to be able to drive a little bit uh, in more uh, more control. Their, their tires will stick to the road a little bit better because you've got that low center of gravity. And, of course, batteries are big and heavy. I mean, if you're driving uh, a Ford F-150 Lightning pickup, your battery is about the size of of a small car. So you're putting all that weight very low in the vehicle. So if there's one plus, this battery electric cars will have better, all things being equal, cold weather traction than a gasoline um, or even a hybrid. And I guess also when you think about the broader uh, history of electric vehicles, uh, 10 years from now, this won't be an issue. There will be some sort of technology that we use, I'm sure, even five years from now. These are the early stages of EVs that we should be you know, dealing with this issue and also the broader concerns that those who live in cold weather climates, that there will be a better range year after year. Well, absolutely. First of all, battery technology is getting better and better every year, and it is getting cheaper and cheaper every year. So that's number one. Number two, the more you live with your battery electric vehicle, the more you adapt to the various driving circumstances. I mean, gasoline cars, normal old gasoline or diesel vehicles, they perform a lot differently in cold weather, too. I mean, I, I lived a long time in Alberta, and, you know, I plugged my car in every night because in Edmonton it was not unusual to have 30 or 40 days in a row that were minus 25 or minus 30. So you plug it in. So we'll learn how to adapt to the, and then the, uh, to drive at the same time, the technology will get better and better, and manufacturers will introduce uh, more energy-saving measures. It, for example, making all electric vehicles, equipping them with heat pumps uh, rather than trying to uh, use other forms of a war- warming and cooling for mm-hmm. the vehicle. So if you're, another tip is one of the differentiators in the electric vehicle market that I would suggest is don't buy an EV that doesn't come with a heat pump. Oh, interesting. And I also, I mean, your your advice to me from day one since we've been talking to each other on this show is if, if you're not comfortable, get yourself a hybrid and the, the technology is going to continue to move with EVs and you've recommended for a while. Also, a hybrid, is, it doesn't hurt either. Oh, yes. And one other thing, I did a little bit of research to find out which would be the best winter range vehicles amongst EV cars. Mm-hmm. Dollar for dollar, dollar, the research that I found finds that one of the cheapest EVs on the market loses the most is the most efficient in cold weather range, and that's the Hyundai Kona, which is um, you know low forties to buy one of those. Hmm. So not too bad. You know, again, it, it's the kind of thing where okay, I'm I'm not buying a less expensive EV, but in a cold weather climate like well 
Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, maybe this is a vehicle that I should consider again, rather than say, oh, a Tesla Model S, which is one of the worst in cold weather for cold weather range. Well, Jeremy, as always, enjoy our conversation. I just found the story so interesting. I made the New York Times today and many local newscasts across North America. So I was uh, wanted to chat with you about it. Thanks for your time once again. Always a pleasure. Well, QP 4500, the union that represents transit supervisors, including ones that uh, oversee bus drivers and mechanics, uh, is threatening to expand its current uh, overtime work ban to shutting down all bus services starting uh, at 3 a.m. on Monday, January uh, 22nd. Um, Here is Liam O'Neill, who is the national representative of QP 4500. Take a listen. We have said if Coast Mountain did not return to the table, we would have no choice but to escalate our strike action. That time is unfortunately here. So, unless the settlement is reached in the coming days, QP 4500 members will be escalating our strike action to get a fair deal that we deserve. QP 4500 will be withdrawing all services from Coast Mountain Bus Company as of 3 a.m. Monday, January 22nd, for 48 hours. What this means is that passengers in the Lower Mainland can expect the suspension of all buses and the sea bus for the two-day withdrawal. Now, wages have been the key issue at the bargaining table. Uh, The Coast Mountain Bus Company uh, has said that they've offered wage increases that are consistent with other public sector settlements and consistent with what all other uh, Coast Mountain Bus Company unions have accepted. They they say the union is demanding that all their members receive wage increases between 20 and 25 percent. That is the usual comments you generally hear from employers and uh, the union group. So let them uh, figure that out at the bargaining table. But wages have been the key issue at the bargaining table. But there's no doubt... This is going to be, if they do move ahead in this case, QP Local 4500, significant disruption uh, to individuals as they head to work and, and many other places. Joining me on to talk about uh, this potential strike is Dennis Agar. He's the Executive Director for Movement for the Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. Uh, Dennis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, what's this mean in your mind with uh, what we've heard over the last 24 hours or so? What impact do you see occurring uh, for uh, transit users? Well, you know, you and I can both guess. We we will all hope for a, a resolution um, at the last minute. But, you know, if it does come to pass, the last thing transit riders need is a strike right now. You know, buses move the majority of transit riders in this region. And over the last year, we've seen bus ridership come roaring back. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, buses are moving slower than ever due to congestion. And, um, and I think that congestion is really putting riders and transit supervisors under the same kind of strain. You know, there's a bit of unpredictability, which with, in terms of, you know, how crowded the road's going to be. Um, and so in addition to bus lanes to tame that kind of chaos, I think we also need ultimately more transit supervisors to, to help react to that kind of chaos. Hmm. And so do you think with, with what uh, the union's asking for these transit supervisors, it's the right thing to ask for, it's the right direction to go in? I mean, yeah, from I'm kind of reading the same press quotes that you are. And mm-hmm. um, it seems like they're asking for, for more money. And both sides say that they're, uh, they're offering the, the right amount of money. I have no idea yeah. what that situation is going on. But um, what I've heard from transit supervisors as well is that they, they need relief. They need more 
more, more of them. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's really, uh, I think, the accurate response to the current situation that we're seeing on the roads here with more riders and, and more congestion. Uh, and, and, you know, we've had, uh, uh, you know, different representatives in regards to our trans, uh, talking about our transit system on the show over the mm-hmm. past year or so. And, and there are parts of Vancouver that are almost back to where things were when it comes to COVID ridership prior to COVID coming. And in some cases, even in south of the Fraser, where they're 120% above where they were prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. So the region's different, but the growth level and the use of transit uh, because of the expense of living in the city just continues to go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for someone like me, it's really beautiful to see. And, you know, I don't know if you remember in 2020, but people were talking as though transit was dead, that it would never come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's nice to see that people are, are coming back, but TransLink hasn't had any kind of increase in, in the number of buses or the, the amount of bus service they can provide. That's been flat since 2019. Um, and with the congestion that I've been talking about, um, every bus can run fewer trips because it takes longer mm-hmm. because of that roadway congestion. So um, with the service being flat since 2019, they're actually providing less capacity for people. So we've heard crazy overcrowding on routes like the 49 and the 323, um, just really beyond um, the level of crowding in 2019, which was it was already bad back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the other challenge in, uh, challenges that we've had Brad West on, who was with the Metro Vancouver Board uh, mm. in regards to TransLink, mayors were just speaking, I think it was last week or the week prior, you know, looking for new levels of funding and commitment mm. for funding from the federal and provincial governments. They need about $700 million in the near future to move forward. Add to that, uh, you know, a movement from uh, conventional fueled vehicles to electric vehicles. And every time somebody mm-hmm. buys an EV, they're not playing that, uh, paying that TransLink tax mm-hmm. of 18 and a half cents per liter. The funding of our transit system, whether it's buses or SkyTrains, whatever it may be, it looks like that is at its core an existential challenge for the region. It's not only just you know, more money from the feds that are required, which I think they'll be balking at. And then on top of that, as I said, every time somebody buys an EV, that's one less a person paying the transit tax to fund the system. Yeah, that's true. You know, I bought one last year myself. And, um, uh, you know, we've got so many people in this region trying to do the right thing, right? Like we hear from riders that are getting left behind by the bus, not just one bus, but four buses pass them and they're all full and they can't get on. We've got so many people in this region clamoring to do the right thing and take the bus, um, and we don't have enough buses to provide to them. I think it, it really makes sense for our region's residents, but also our region's economy to really invest in transit and put a lot more money into it. Mm-hmm. I would love it if the feds ponied up. Uh, I think we also need the province and the munis to pony up. Um, what I would really hate to see is um, fares going up, and fares being like leaned on heavily to make up that gap um, because I just don't think riders can take it. Yeah. Well, it's going to be very interesting this weekend. Hopefully there's a deal and uh, we can avert uh, the situation Monday morning because the impact on uh, the public, first of all, the region, our community, we've just gone through a couple of days of snow and it's already impacting our ability to move around the region and we don't need a strike as well. So fingers crossed that we can come to a deal. That's for sure. Uh, Dennis, yeah. as always, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> My pleasure. And let me know if you got any more of those uh, dine-out gift cards. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.